Thank you, Saha, for leading us this morning. Thank you to our worship team as well. And I've been meaning to say this to you for a few weeks, um, but just thank you for your singing. Um, to be able to gather here and uh, just hear people singing all around you, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So um, thank you for making a joyful noise uh, and just in lifting up praises to our Lord. It's just uh, been wonderful to, to hear you sing each and every week. Even those of you who are watching online right now, we hope that you sing out good and loud and annoy the rest of the people in your home. Research, researchers do a fair bit of work studying what is it that attracts people to watching sports? What keeps them watching sports games again and again and again, staying up to ridiculous hours at night to watch certain sports? And they would say that there's something that happens, what they call the almost moment, that is just as exciting in sports as an actual goal. So, for example, in soccer or football, when someone kicks the soccer ball and it hits the goalpost, that, oh, is as exciting for the watcher as if it actually went in. Or in hockey, if you slap the puck and it hits the crossbar, if you putt and the ball goes and loops around the hole and does not go in, in basketball you shoot, it bounces on the rim three times and does not go in. That those moments are just as exciting for the sports fan as if it did go in. The almost moment is just as exciting. They also study this in relationship to gambling. The sensation of almost winning in gambling is just as exciting as if you actually won, whether you're at a slot machine or you're playing and gambling on your phone. That the sensation of almost winning is just as exciting. In fact, they have this fascinating phrase uh, when they study this, um, when it relates to gambling, they call it losses disguised as wins. Hmm, losses disguised as wins that the sensation of almost winning is as powerful as actually winning. So I just feel like I need to say this to you out loud this morning for your absolute clarity. There's another way of saying um, losses disguised as wins. Do you know what that is? Losses. That any way you shake it, you still lost. Um, if you're in a sporting game or whether you're gambling, a loss is a loss is a loss, and it's a foolish way to lose your money. We're going to come back to that um, in a minute. I think as Christians, one of the things that um, is helpful to have a conversation about every now and again is how is it that God changes our hearts? How is it that God changes our hearts? How does that actually happen? Do we just read our Bibles and pray and serve and give a little money and kind of do some things for other people and just magically it will happen? Are there certain things that we should pay attention to, specific things that go before other things, certain attitudes that we should have, or does it all just work out in the end, that we grow to become deeply mature followers of Jesus Christ if we just live long enough? Well, there's been a lot of writing on this over the last number of years, and so let me kind of boil it down to kind of what I would say three things that each of us as followers of Jesus Christ need to have at the center of our minds if we want to become more and more like him. Those people, as we talk about this, would say three things. The first they would say is we choose. You have to choose this for yourself. You have to say, this is what I want, and it's what I want more than anything else. I want to be this kind of a person, but I want to be this kind of person more than anything else. That the vision of the life that Jesus is inviting me into is greater than anybody else's vision for my life. 
This life empowered by the Holy Spirit, where the fruits of the Spirit are growing, where the gifts of the Spirit are used, this is what I want for me and my life more than anything else. And it starts with a choice. I can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. Your spouse or small group can't make it for you. You're the only one who gets to choose to say, this is what I want, but it starts with a choice. Second, we pick habits to reinforce that choice. We pick the kind of spiritual disciplines that will help us kind of live that choice out in our life. So we choose to pray, we fast, we worship, we give, we serve, we practice silence. We do all of these things so as to reinforce this choice of having this kind of life that the Lord has promised to us. And as we participate in these habits, the Holy Spirit is deeply at work, and the result of the Spirit's work in those cases is it changes our heart. That's how our heart gets changed. It starts with a choice, it's reinforced with spiritual habits, and then the result is our heart gets changed, which means... (laughs) There's going to be a season by which you're practicing the habits, but you're not yet feeling it, which is normal. Let me give you an analogy. Um, A couple of years ago, I chose cycling to take it up as a hobby. I shouldn't say I chose it. Um, My knees chose it for me. I couldn't run anymore without pain. I couldn't play hockey anymore without stuff hurting. And so I really didn't have many options left other than sitting on a bike and cycling because it doesn't hurt my knees. So I chose cycling. After that, I decided, you know what, I should get an app. There's apps for that. I should listen to some podcasts, and I started doing that. Then I got a YouTube channel. If my wife were here this morning, she would say, I get sick and tired of walking into the TV room, and Rob's watching some cycling videos. But I'll watch these things, and over time, I made the choice. I've established these habits, and you know what? My love for cycling has only increased. This is the way that we change our hearts. Now, our culture will tell you otherwise. They'll say it's backwards. No, 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 no. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Trust your heart. Wherever your heart leads you, you should go to that place. But Scripture would say, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Be careful. Your heart may have some good things in it, but it can also lie to you. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. In other words, it can be the best liar to you. Let me tell you about my heart. Uh, My heart has ADD, uh, which means one minute it wants to lose 20 pounds, and 10 minutes later, I'm on skip the dishes ordering a bucket of wings, okay? 10 minutes, and my heart goes a completely different direction. My heart is the greatest used car salesman, and I am the biggest sucker. It will sell me things that I have no need of and are not helpful to me, whatever, My heart is a three-year-old petulant child that becomes obsessed with things. And if it doesn't get it, it's going to throw a tenter tantrum. And it's probably the worst thing to ever let drive important decisions about my life. The point is this. My heart needs to be trained. It needs to be trained to want the things the Lord wants for me. And that's how our hearts are transformed. We choose what it is we want most. We establish the habits or the spiritual disciplines. And in time, the Holy Spirit begins to transform and train our heart to want those things. Our hearts like losses disguised as wins. Your heart can take a situation in our life, a situation where we're actually losing, and convince us that we are winning. Oh, look at us. 
The reason we call her back when we know we shouldn't, the reason we hang out at his desk when we know we shouldn't, we think we're winning. But the reality is we are so close to a devastating loss. The reason we handle money uh, a little bit in the gray area, we convince ourselves everybody does this at work. We've convinced ourselves we're winning. You're one step away from a massive loss. Think about the biggest regrets in your life. Those decisions that you make that you look back now on and say, oh, that was so foolish. It was a loss disguised as a win. So discipleship, if you and I want to be followers of Jesus Christ, starts by choosing the very thing we want to be the center of our life. Last week, we looked at a passage where Jesus tells us the most important choice that you and I are gifted and able to make is the gift to, or the ability to choose what we love above all other things. And Jesus invites us to love him with everything that we are, to commit to him with everything that we are. But we know this is not easy. For some of us, there's other things that we love more than the Lord. It's just true. It's just true. And what a gift for the Lord to show us that so we could decide if that's the way we want it to be. For some of us, it's competing interests. We're trying to love the Lord with all we've got, but oh, there's some other things. Mm, There's a battle going on. For other of us, we just don't know. We don't think about these things, and that's fine too. I'm forcing you to this morning. You're welcome. And so, we've been looking at these encounters where Jesus meets with people, and he shows them their heart, the thing that they like above all other things. And he extends to them this beautiful invitation to another way of life. I'm going to invite you to turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. We'll read a few verses and talk about it and then read a few more. Mark chapter 10, it's on page 1570 in the Red Bible, if you can look it up electronically. This is an amazing story. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Let's just stop there for a second. Now, this story appears here in Mark, also in Matthew and in Luke. And in those accounts, this young man is referred to as what? Three descriptors. Rich, young, ruler. He's the rich, young ruler. He's rich. Now, we pretend that we don't pay attention to what other people have and how much they make, but I know that you do. And if you're sitting in your small group, you're sitting around thinking, I wonder what they make. I wonder what she hauls in a year. If you're sitting with your family at Christmas and the gatherings all around, you're thinking, I wonder what he makes a year. You're paying attention to these things, right? If you're watching people on your street, you're interested. You kind of keep track of these things. If this guy's in your small group, you look at him and you say, he's the rich one. He's a ruler or a leader. We're not told of what, but he's someone who's got power and he's young. And in that culture, to be young and rich or young and powerful was very uncommon. So this guy's special. And let's just complete the stereotype, shall we? Let's also say that he's good-looking. Let's throw good-looking in there as well. And now everybody can kind of picture this guy in your mind. Is that okay? And he comes to Jesus, this new rabbi, and he shocks everybody by calling him good. Now, good in our day, if I say, hey, how was the movie? And you say, good, I think, oh, I'm not going to see it. In this day, the good, think about Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the heavens and earth and says that it's Good. 
It's at that caliber. It's a significant word. Commentators state that there's not one piece of evidence that the term good is ever used of any rabbis in that time. And Jesus does not argue with them, but is curious. Why do you call me good? And the young man has a deeply spiritual question. It's about eternal life. He wants to know, as John Mayer would sing, am I living it right? Am I doing this right? He's got questions about whether he's living in a way that matters to God and whether he'll be considered worthy of the life of the kingdom of God. And it's an important question. And Jesus wants to truly help him see in this moment what this young guy cannot see for himself. And so he engages him in a conversation about this very question. And I just need to give you a warning here. I just ask you to pay attention. I'm going to read through the rest of this account. Watch Jesus. Watch how he interacts with this man. Watch how he turns him inside out and shows this man the very thing that matters most to him so graciously and lovingly. Let's pick up reading again, starting at verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. But it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So this young guy comes asking a question about eternal life, and Jesus gives him a, an answer that probably didn't surprise him. He talks to him about obeying the commandments, and he lists a specific set of commandments again. He's working in a way that this young man can't even see. A quick refresher about the Ten Commandments. If, we were, if they're broken into two, there's two themes. Uh, the first four commandments have to do with our vertical relationship with God, and the bottom six have to do with our horizontal relationship with each other. Or we might say the first four deal with how it is that we love God, and the bottom four, or the bottom six, how it is that we love our neighbor. Which column did Jesus speak to this young man about? The second. He mentioned multiple ones from that list about his relationship to loving other people. Notice what he did not at this point address. And the young man says, good, nice. Hey, I've been doing this since I was a kid. I got these. And he's probably thinking to himself at this point, I got this Jesus guy right where I want him. And of course, Jesus is thinking, I've got this young man right where I want him. And then Jesus kind of almost flippantly says, just one more thing. Let me just throw out another commandment for you to consider. Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. 
just one more thing Jesus says. What initially looks like an offhanded comment is Jesus again getting into this under the surface of this man's life. And his command is crystal clear. There's no way to read it in any other way. Go home and liquidate all of your assets. Sell everything that you have. Put it on Kijiji or Facebook Marketplace. I don't care. Have a yard sale, but I want you to sell everything. Don't come back to me until the house is empty. And then I want you to take that money and all of the money in your banking accounts, savings accounts, all of your investments, everything. I want zero to be on the screen of all your financial apps and give it all to the poor. And then you can come and follow me. Just one more thing. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you think of yourself as rich? Let me be more pointed. When Jesus talks about people being rich, do you think he's talking about you? Let me help you. He is. For most of you in this room, you are rich. Most of us will go home today like me, and I'll have two or three or four or five options for lunch, and I will still eat out. Okay? If you have a car and a house, you are in the top five percentile of wealthiest people on planet Earth right now. Top five percent. That means there's 6.6 billion people who have less than you have as it relates to possessions. As we read through the New Testament and we come across these difficult and challenging passages about what it is to be wealthy, we have to be able to say, yes, this is for me. It's not for Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And Jesus says it's hard for us to enter the kingdom of heaven because of all that we have, to which we should answer, yeah, you know what, I can feel that. I can see how that could be possible because wealth can deceive us into believing. I can do it on my own. I'm enough on my own. I don't need God. I don't need to pray for daily bread. I have a deep freeze filled with bread. I don't need to pray for safety as I travel. I got a car. It's got like safety bells and whistles, and it's got cameras and sensors and airbags. I'll be good on my own, right? We have this attitude slowly over time where we can think, I don't really need God. Look, Jesus knows that for this young man and for you and I, our stuff, our money is the main competitor for the affection of our hearts. Money and stuff and getting stuff and looking successful and comparing with other people can completely swallow our lives. And nothing disguises a loss as a win more than the accumulation of more things. Jesus would say it this way, you can gain the whole world, and you can lose your soul at the same time. It's a hellish trade-off. And I can't help but wonder if this young man, as he comes to Jesus, falls down on his knees and calls him a good teacher, is starting to get a sense of that in his own life. When Jesus tells him to go away and give everything that he's got away, Jesus' words flatten him. They deflate him. He's devastated at this invitation of this new commandment. Mark says, at this, his face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, the word sad here that Mark chooses is interesting because he also uses it later on in the Gospels to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's interesting. If you remember Jesus the night before he went to the cross, he went into the Garden to pray 
And as he received God's assignment for him, it said he was grieved. It's the same word. He was in deep distress because he was about to experience the greatest loss of his life. The thing that mattered most to him was about to be taken away. That is, he was to be separated from his heavenly father. All that he had was going to go to zero. And when Jesus calls this young man to give up his wealth, to empty his accounts to zero, he was in deep distress too because he was about to lose the thing that mattered most to him. He grieved the loss of his wealth in the same way that Jesus grieved the separation that he would have with his heavenly Father. And in this one short interaction that Jesus has with this young man, he turns him inside out and shows him what's really in his heart. What he loves most. What's the center of his being. What's the engine that runs under the surface that drives his life. And I think it's disciples. One of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, am I open to the Lord doing the same thing in me? Am I open to the Lord turning me inside out and showing me what might be competing for the right, His rightful place as Lord of our lives? Whether we're aware of it or unaware of it, whether are we willing to let Jesus show it to us? Even if it means at first our response is like His, sadness, devastation, but in the end, it could be the greatest gift that Jesus ever gives. And notice Jesus' heart for this man. What did it say? He looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. Jesus was not trying to ruin this man. He wasn't trying to take away his money. Jesus isn't interested in his money. He's interested in his heart. Jesus wants to be the one whom he loves most. And Jesus is saving him from the crushing regret that comes when we're older, when we realize we missed the point. Jesus is saving him from gaining the whole world and forfeiting his soul. He's saving him from the moment that the disguise is ripped off and he sees that what he thought was a win his whole life is actually a loss. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Now again, as I was kind of reflecting on this passage this week, I couldn't help if the young man's already starting to know, maybe money and wealth can't deliver what they promise. Maybe having more does not lead to inside peace. Peace at the soul level. And Jesus says to him, you know, it's not another commandment you need. You don't need another commandment. You need to ask yourself whether you really believe that I am enough for you. Whether I'm really, really good and will be enough for you. That living with God at the center of your life is eternal life. And that you can have that today. You can have it now. You can have a sampler now of eternity when you let the Lord be the centerpiece of your life. And then you'll get the full thing later when you pass from this life. Because living in a wealth-obsessed, comparison-dripping culture makes this really hard for you and for me. Let's just be honest. So let me just mention two clues that you might just say, you know, what are two clues that would help me if I'm kind of like this rich young ruler struggling in this area? Let me just mention two things. First, you can't give. You just can't give. You might want to give. You might think about it. You might have made a commitment to give. But when the actual moment comes, you don't do it. 
you chicken out. You just can't do it. When it comes right down to it, your heart is pulling the strings and telling you, no, 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 no. You can't live with less. No, 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 no. You can't do that. And so the practice for the heart, if that's your story, is in the consistent act of giving. Forcing your heart to learn to love something it doesn't right now love. You have been discipled by our culture that tells you this, life is found in having more. That's been the message of our culture. Jesus is inviting us to a different way of seeing our lives. And if that's your challenge, then you need to sit down and figure out, I'm going to give and I'm going to give consistently. And I'm going to retrain my heart. The other clue might be you live with what I would call severe envy. Not normal or a little bit of envy. We all, we all have that. Severe envy. You know everybody what they have. You think about your friends. You think about your colleagues. You think about your family. You have a scorecard somewhere in your mind that is keeping track. And you are desperately concerned about not keeping up with them. You've got a scorecard and you're worried that you are falling behind and other people are getting more than you and it's eating you up inside. Worse, you have no appreciation for the many things that God has given you. All you have eyes for is what I don't have. And you're blind to what you do have. And if this is your situation, then the the spiritual habit for you is the practice of gratitude. Small, medium, and large, what are the gifts that God has given to me? Naming them, writing them down, counting them, which with partnership with the Holy Spirit will begin to change our hearts. And as we choose this vision of life, that our stuff won't own us, and that God will be enough for us, we will discover that He really, 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 He's good. He's the true source of our joy and our life. He's the gift our souls are aching for. He's the one who holds eternal life for us now and in the life to come. But it starts by choosing him above all other things. I'm going to invite the the team to come back as we get ready to finish up here this morning. You know, more than anything as we read through this passage this morning... I would hope that you're captured by this vision of Jesus. You're captured by it. As you see the way he engages this young man, gently turning him inside and out, loving him, showing him what's at the center of his life and offering him what is real eternal life, that you would be captured by a God who treats us this way. Because remember that Jesus is the perfect rich young ruler. He's the Son of God who is richer than any of us could imagine. He's more powerful than any of us could ever know. And he left it all behind. He gave it up. As Paul would say in Ephesians 2, he emptied himself. Why? So that we could have eternal life. Eternal life starting now as the kingdom of God breaks into our lives, disrupts us and reorders everything. And so that we can have eternal life eventually when God's kingdom comes once and for all. Jesus was not asking this young guy to do something that he himself hadn't already done. And maybe today, you need to choose again to place your life in the hands of the ultimate rich young ruler who promises you life that is really life. Let's pray. Lord, may we have the courage 
to ask you to show us what is really the most important thing in our life. The courage to gently and lovingly turn us inside out that we might see the engine that drives us, the vision of life that's really most important to us. And may we have the courage in faith to believe that your gift to us is good, that you are good, and that you are enough. As we sang earlier about how great is your faithfulness, may we put those words into practice as we live our lives unto you.